This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Michael Knox Barron about his new and very fine book, Wasps, The Splendors and Miseries of an American Aristocracy. The last page of the book, Michael, comes with your summation of it as a song of lamentation for fallen toffs. You write with the hand of a poet. But before we get to the heart of the matter, perhaps you can begin with the prosaic. Who were the toffs and when did they flourish and thrive? From whence did they come, and for how long did they hold pride of place in America's cultural and political affairs? Mention some of the more luminous names in the Wasp pantheon. Yes, well, the Wasps that we sort of know best and uh, who, whose names have uh, lasted longest, uh, they, still, they still mean something to a lot of people, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, cold warriors like Dean Acheson and Averill Harriman and Joe Alsop. Uh, and then there are the sort of dazzling uh, figures of style, Isabella Stewart Gardner, Edie Sedgwick, Babe Paley, Marietta Peabody Tree. They've come to stand in some ways for a sort of idea of glamour and power, privilege, something very enviable, the thing that uh, Jay Gatsby envies in Fitzgerald's novel. But when you look at their actual beginning, it was, uh, they began at an extremely low ebb in their, own, uh, in their own histories. After the Gilded Age, the wasps were feeling themselves overshadowed in a country that their forebears uh, were accustomed to lead. You have figures like Henry Adams, who descendant of a uh, two presidents, he now finds himself in the Gilded Age of the Vanderbilts as uh, being overshadowed by a class that was not only uh, usurping the, the old lost place in the hierarchies, but was uh, embodied a different conception of life. I think some of the early wasps, uh, like Henry Adams, like John J. Chapman, Theodore Roosevelt, were appalled by the narrowness of the, the new classes. They were very much influenced by uh, European and British traditions of civic humanism, by Coleridge and Matthew Arnold, uh, who believed that the uh, modern industrial, microscopically specialized world was failing to develop, in Arnold's words, all sides of our humanity and was, as a result, producing uh, incomplete and mutilated men. The Watts were really born in the attempt to get beyond that and to realize a different idea of the good life in the uh, late 19th century. The acronym WASPs stands for what? I mean, we might as well make that clear to some people who might not know it. It white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? I mean, the descendants from the, the early American settlers, the, the, the Puritan City on the Hill. The yes, exactly. Families of Boston that are known as, as the Boston Brahmins. Exactly. But the, the term really, wasp, is always sort of ludicrously imprecise. Louis Auchincloss, uh, he really hated it. He, 
he said growing up, uh, he was born in 1917, he said growing up, they didn't use the term, and he, he really disliked it. And uh, I, I think a better definition would probably be one that would explore the both their descent from earlier American elites and the closeness of their family and institutional connections. I mean, my own working definition of a Auchincloss style wasp would be, and it covers most of the people in the book, would be somebody who's connected to at least one of these institutions, the Porcellian Club at Harvard, Skull and Bones at Yale, the Knickerbocker, the Colony Club in New York, Somerset Club in Boston, St. Grottlesex schools, some certain various uh, summer watering holes, places like that, and an intense uh, uh, kinship structure too, very endogenous. They all married each other's, uh, they married within their families. All right, well then let's begin with Henry Adams and the founding of the Groton School, which I take to be one of the, you know, fundamental uh, cradles of of the uh, WASP establishment. Yes. We were talking about Theodore Roosevelt feeling that the Gilded Age was producing a certain narrower, in Theodore's words, a sort of timid, uh, short-sightedly selfish class of rich figures. I guess the Vanderbilts or the Goulds would be people that stood for that. Endicott Peabody descended from old uh, Massachusetts and Brahmin families, and his cousin, William Emery Gardner, Isabella Stewart Gardner's nephew and adopted son, uh, wanted to take a class of young wasps and prepare them for a larger role in life. They all knew stories about people with their privilege just sort of lived in their clubs. I mean, this was Theodore Roosevelt's uh, younger brother, Elliot, who uh, was a talented man, but drank himself to death at a young age and left uh, his daughter, Eleanor, as an orphan. So Groton School was intended to combat that. It's partly with what was has been called muscular Christianity. You get out there and you play football and you live in Spartan cubicles. But there was also a whole humane uh, tradition of, I would say, civic humanism that uh, Emery Gardner, who is known as WAG by the boys, uh, tried to institute at Groton. He really tried to bring about the old Athenian notion of uh, the well-rounded citizen who makes a contribution. That was going to be, that was supposed to be the Groton ideal. And it, it to some extent worked. Richard Hofstetter, the historian, would call uh, Groton, uh, as he said, quote, a little democracy for, a little Greek democracy for the elite. And the word that you use often in the book is eutropelia. Right, eutropelia, yes. That, that, is that Italian or Greek? Greek. And it's, it, it, means, it kind of means the well-rounded... Yes, it's, Thucydides uses it in the funeral oration, which is, a, I guess, would be a key text, a key text for young wasps. They would study it in Billy Wagg's Greek class. And it meant originally graceful turning, but it came to mean what Thucydides, paraphrasing Pericles, is uh, the person that can prove himself self-sufficient in the most various forms of activity and do it uh, with certain style and grace. And this was this was the sort of humanist ideal that the Wasps was, somebody that would be interested in the arts and culture, but that would also be capable of leading and taking a real role in the uh, civic and the political life of their country and not just, you know, sit back and live the life of uh, a leisure gentleman, which many of them could. Right. So that when Henry Adams in the 1880s, I mean, is to the manner born and, and he, 
his father is grandfather and great-grandfather have been presidents, and his father is the American ambassador in London during the Civil War, and Henry works for his father in London as a secretary. And then when he comes back to the United States in the 1860s, he's filled with this idea that you just mentioned of trying to reform and uplift the American uh, ruling class. Yes, he's very much in the the progressive reform tradition, at least at the beginning of his career. He can't do it himself, but but Theodore Roosevelt does. Yes, although they had a sort of mixed relationship. He sort of resented the fact that Theodore succeeded where he didn't. I think, though, the problem, I think Henry Adams was probably much the largest intelligence that uh, among the Wasp minds, uh, whereas I think Franklin Roosevelt was probably the cleverest in terms of practical calculation. But it was that very largeness of mind in Henry Adams, that unwillingness to specialize that made it, uh, it made it all but impossible for him to succeed in politics, uh, where you have to pay your dues, you have to, you have to do things he was not willing, make sacrifices you're not willing to, to, to make. The characters of the wasps, what you call the high wasps, which you'll explain to me the difference between the high wasp and the low wasp, but you find them in the novels of Henry James and Edith Wharton, William Dean Howells, and Thomas Beer and many others. But that's where we, we get our idea of, of how wasps walk and talk and think. Right, yes, uh the cultivated accents, the uh, uh, emphasis on good taste, although also quite keen eye on their own interests, too. This was also not simply about idealism, but about power. These were people that, uh, as we were saying, felt overshadowed by the new classes, the new money, the new industrial power. And their revolution did create a whole new venue for for their sorts of ambition, producing, in addition to the Roosevelt's, Henry Stimson, Learned Hand, uh, Edmund Wilson, who succeed and dominate certain areas in diplomacy and politics or in culture. Do you count among, does, does uh, Walter Lippmann appear and in, in your narrative? Or, or? Yeah, I think that that's the interesting thing. I think in the end that uh, Wasps, while they are bound by ties of blood and kinship. Uh, the high wasps that I'm describing for the most part in the books, the, in the book, the people that stood out in public life or in other aspects of American culture, were really, really defines them, even distinguishes them from other people in their own class, is this uh, desire for human completeness, to do justice in the Greek sense to what was in them. And uh, Walter Lippmann very much identified with that. He had the same humanist education. He had the same mentors at Harvard. Uh, George Santayana uh, was his uh, principal preceptor there, and he studied uh, Lucretius and Dante and uh, Goethe, reading them all in the original languages under Santayana's uh, tutorship. So he was uh, what I would call an, an honorary wasp, as, for instance, uh, Bernard Berenson was as well. Your book comes, I, I think, I, I can't remember whether it's 39 chapters or 38, but the, each chapter you have 
an epigraph from the poet Dante. Why do you do that? And, and what role does Dante play in the formation of the wasp attitude toward life? Yes, it's, it's amazing. After the Civil War, uh, there was a great Dante craze among certain elements of American life. I think there was a, a detective novel uh, that came out maybe 20 years ago uh, about the Dante, uh, the Dante Club or something along those lines. Uh, especially in Boston, Brahmins were reading it. And I think it spoke to their own, their own despair, their own, their own uh, unhappiness. They had all kinds of nervous breakdowns. They knew it as neurasthenia and they all suffered. They all were sort of head cases. And, and Donna really spoke to them both as the, uh, by describing the state of mind, their inner anguish, but also uh, his belief that you could work through it and see the light. Henry Stimson would, would quote Dante in his own uh, memoir, saying that after years of uh, the sort of narrow practice of law, when he finally was able to be the United States attorney for the Southern District in New York, he said, I felt like for the first time in my life, I got out of the dark places to a place where I could see the stars, which uh, recapitulated Pitulates the end of uh, the, the Inferno, the first uh, part of Dante's Divine Comedy. How do you fit? You have a chapter on J.P. Morgan. How do you fit J.P. Morgan to the Wasp ascendancy? He was much more ambiguous for the for the high Wasp, like Henry Adams. They much admired his public service, uh, even though it was driven by profit. But he was our de facto uh, central banker. Uh, at a time when the federal government was not very strong, he was the one that would presidents would look to to help solve uh, economic and labor crises uh, in the 1890s, particularly. At the same time, he was much more at home with the sort of Marlborough set, Prince Edward, yeah, the Prince of Wales, that sort of luxurious rich people's uh, life that the wasps were more, the high wasps were very ambivalent about. And, uh, he had the wasp love of art, but a lot of debate among wasps as to whether he really cared about the art or the just the acquisition, the sort of showing off aspect of it. He sort of, I think, in some ways parodied in uh, Henry James's uh, The Golden Bowl in the figure of the avid uh, collector who makes a lot of money and wants to establish a museum and all that sort of thing. Is it fair to say that during World War One and World War Two, the, the staffing of the government, the State Department, the executive offices, the attorney general are are largely wasps? I mean, it, yes. By the by, the you really see wasps coming into their own. A real network of privilege and power. It's where Franklin Roosevelt gets his start as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Of course, they didn't control everything, but the State Department was on its way to becoming a wasp uh, fiefdom, which it remained probably through the 40s when it began to democratize. Yes, and, and then, then they're, the, they're the group that, that goes in 1919 to Paris with Wilson, the inquiry, you know, the people that advise Wilson in his negotiation of the 14 points. And the 14 points is kind of a wasp idea too, isn't it? Well, I think 
my own sense is the Wasp were much more in Theodore Roosevelt's uh, geopolitical realist tradition. And they had a lot of doubts about Wilson's idea of America and other powers exercising foreign policy on benevolent and altruistic grounds. I think Theodore Roosevelt thought that was nonsense. He said the 14 points were, were mush. They could mean anything or nothing. The Wasps, I think, were deeply disappointed by the fact that, that Wilson was not able to be more of a realist to create a better peace. Uh, he left Germany, in an, even though he embittered it by the reparations that he conceded to Lord George and Penloso, he, uh, he set them up in a, a better geopolitical position to win the next war. And uh, I think the Wasps came away from that with an idea that, you, that you've got to be much more, much more cold-eyed in the pursuit of the, of the national interest. I think that was what led Franklin Roosevelt to bring the country in to the Second World War, even though the country was profoundly isolationist uh, in the 30s. Roosevelt steadily worked to prepare American opinion to intervene in the world on the basis partly of our own interests, not humanitarianism. But, the, but it's the WASP uh, mentality that sets up the Council on Foreign Relations, which is another stronghold of the WASP uh, turn of mind, yes? Yes, definitely. But, but there it, it becomes a citadel for pursuing the, the very realistic or more realistic uh, policies of the Cold War to contain, in this case, Soviet aggression, which was very different from Wilson's idea that he thought that you could the nations could get, get together because they'd all be democracies now. They would be altruistic. They would be willing to intervene collectively to prevent an aggressor. That never worked. Uh, I think the WASP establishment under particularly Dean Acheson's leadership was much more cold-eyed and realistic. Uh, in fact, Acheson was very explicit about rejecting what he saw as Wilson's fatuous uh, idealism. What what happens to the wasps in the twenties? You talk about the overthrow of Victorianism, and you talk about some of the leading women. It's a great sea change, yeah, a great sea change. Wasp women were really uh, at the forefront of a lot of cultural changes in American life. They for divorce and the love affair; these were things that were very much taboo uh, in the Victorian age. And whilst women, there was a great undercurrent of dissatisfaction. Eleanor Roosevelt felt it. Gertrude uh, Vanderbilt Whitney felt it. She became a sculptor and collector of American art, founded the Whitney Museum, and lived a life outwardly quite conventional, but she had sort of a second double life in which she was exploring all kinds of modernist territory that would have been unthinkable a generation or so before for a wasp woman and other habits are changing too. Uh, a whole, it's the sort of iconoclasm that Lytton Strachey made famous with eminent Victorians. It's a sort of throwing off of, you know, the Victorian, uh, Victorian reticences and wasp women played a great part in that. And how, how then do you relate T.S. Eliot? I mean, T.S. Eliot publishes the wasteland in 1922 and the uh, how does that fit into your discussion? I mean, Eliot himself has a 
wasp background. Very much so. His his uh, grandfather came out west to St. Louis, but Elliot was educated at uh, Milton and Harvard and was educated by Santiana and others. His father and his grandfather were very much in the wasp tradition of public service and public obligation. And there was this belief that through political reform, uh, wasps really could renew the country. Elliot, coming a little bit later, he's born in 1888, sees that that is not going to be the, the cure that many wasps had thought it would be. A little bit like Henry Adams, he begins to look to the need for uh, cultural reform or regeneration. He characterizes modern modern life as sort of the wasteland, which is not very different from what we find Henry Adams characterizing it in the uh, in his memoir, The Education of Henry Adams. And Elliot is one of these wasps who is really looking to cultural regeneration. In his case, it takes the form of uh, Anglo-Catholicism and uh, tradition classics in literature and, uh, and, the, and the arts. For Henry Adams, it was, uh, it was Chart, Chart and uh, the medieval, uh, the Middle Age, the cult of the Madonna, which uh, spoke very deeply to Henry Adams, even though he wasn't in any way a conventionally religious man. If I read your book correctly, the the arc of the wasp ascendancy is what? I mean, it begins in the 1880s and ends in when, the 1960s? I think, yes, the 1960s is a combination of the things that are occurring. First of all, wasps themselves saw that uh, their sort of, forgive me for saying it, but their inbreeding and their nepotism would uh, could be ruinous if they're not bringing enough new talent into their organization. So you have um, Henry Chauncey, who ironically is a legacy at Groton and at Harvard. He's instrumental in developing the scholastic aptitude test to uh, level the playing field. So now you don't have to go to Groton or Hotchkiss uh, to be admitted to Yale or Harvard. You can go to a regular high school and perform well on the SAT. So the, the post-war meritocracy is eroding the WASP's position. I think as well, there's a, a cultural shift um, as uh, after the war, there's less, less deference, less, much harder to preserve that old, yeah, 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 no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm myself privy to that. I mean, I went to the Hotchkiss School in the main building. I graduated in 1952. The main building was in the shape of a Y, pointed at New Haven. And, uh, of my class of 70, 35 went to Yale. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that changes in the 60s. King, Kingman Brewster comes comes into Yale and and, and it makes a very definite uh, attempt to even the playing field, you know, and finally get around to admit women. And of course, that changes everything because part of the elite solidarity was carried on by whom you knew in college, and uh, now you know different people. So it changes the whole complexion of things. People aren't marrying within their uh, their tribal groups as much. Also, of course, the FDR, the greatest of the wasp statesmen, but his wealth taxes eroded that margin of capital on which a lot of wasps depended for their uh, for their 
to fund their public service. But then the other large problem is that uh, they were made mistakes on Vietnam, whether it was all their fault or not. No, it wasn't. But uh, they were there and they they're associated with it. And as Kingman Brewster said to McGeorge Bundy, McGeorge, Mac is going to spend the rest of his life trying to explain the mistakes he made on Vietnam. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, the so-called best and the brightest, right? With people surrounding Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. Talk talk some about the, um, well, I have a couple of questions. What, what about the, you say the mystique of the wasp derived from their power to exclude, not to, to, from clubs, banks, government office, so forth, and the uh, also there the touch of, of anti-Semitism in in uh, Henry Adams as well as in Teddy Roosevelt and T. S. Eliot, and uh, that's that's one of the quite unfortunate aspects of the, that wasp culture was that exclusiveness that uh, maintained itself by sort of scapegoating or denigrating other people. But that does begin to fall apart in the, in the 50s and 60s. But still, I think it does explain a little bit of, of, of Camelot in that the wasps still did have, to some degree, an aura that people sort of wanted to be a little bit a part of that world. I think John F. Kennedy quite identified uh, in many ways. He'd gone to Choate in Harvard and marrying Jacqueline uh, Bouvier, whose stepfather is Hugh Auchincloss. He was very connected to that wasp world. And his, uh, his court during Camelot was probably the most wasp heavy of the, I mean, McGeorge Bundy, uh, C. Douglas Dillon, uh, Averill Harriman, his closest journalistic paladin, and Ben, well, Ben Bradley's a wasp too, but it's also Joe Alsop, uh, that, that was really, I think Kennedy was quite culturally at home, the, the, much to the amusement of uh, his, one of his Irish fixers, Dave Powers, who, who, who sort of thought it was amusing, but admitted that some of them, like Leverett, Saul, and Stahl, were quite personable, and he joked that Leverett was, uh, must have been Irish on his uh, chauffeur's side. But uh... All right, now let's get toward the end. Wait, you, you open your book with, with Joe Alsop, and Joe Alsop, having civic-minded dinners in Georgetown and playing the part of Virgil to, 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 to the Kennedy administration. Talk about Joe Alsop and, and sort of the end of the WASP ascendancy. Yes, Joe, he's a, he's a fascinating character. He carried the WASP manner almost to the, well, to the point of character, caricature perhaps, but also it, it's quite beguiling, his, his whole manner. It's very theatrical. He's got the, all kinds of props with his cigarette holder and uh, all of that. And uh, he pretends to dislike every form of aristocracy, but as his stepson Bill Patton said, he was a tremendous snob and very much aware of who everybody's lineage was. But he, he, he quite, he really was... Uh, enamored of, of John F. Kennedy. Um, he said Kennedy's made him feel 20 years younger again. Uh, it really gave him a new lease on life, and he quite identified with Kennedy. And uh, that in itself, though, is sort of a sign that the end may be up for the wasps when uh, they really need that sense of vitality from an outsider because they, they can't provide it themselves. There was no 
there was no Franklin Roosevelt of their own class that was capable of, 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 of reaching people the way or uh, beguiling people the way Jack Kennedy could. And uh, it speaks to a, a little bit of a streak of desperation you see in some of these late Wasp characters that they, they do latch on to almost vampirically to some more magnetic outsider. You see it in Edie Sedgwick uh, finding a guru in Andy Warhol or Babe Paley finding a, a, a sort of blithe spirit in Truman Capote. And you see that in Alsop uh, clinging almost rather desperately to Jack. He was so eager to have Jack come over to his house on the evening of the day he was inaugurated as president. And then when Jack is killed, uh, it really uh, Alsop said, my, my life is in some ways over. I sort of date its sort of real end to November 1963. Yes, I mean, I, I, I was working as a reporter for the Herald Tribune in 1961. Was Jock Whitney still in charge at that point? Jock, Jock, Jock Whitney was, yes, owned the paper. And when Alsop came to town, it was my desk that he appropriated. <laughs> so I, I, I was dismissed from his presence on a number of occasions, and I remember his rather imperial manner. <laughs> anyway, okay, the, uh, let's get to the end of your... You, you end with saying that your book is a, a song of lamentation, but even so, you are grateful for what you've you know of the wasps i mean that they 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 managed to produce diplomats lawyers bankers but not poets or prophets and so talk, yeah talk about that and talk about your idea of plato's uh, thread and and uh, choir of, of music and poetry i i think what is maybe one of the most, uh, one of the valuable achievements of the Wasps was to, well, as we talked about early, try, try to keep a larger idea of uh, human possibility, human completion, doing justice to your various powers in an age in which all the uh, tendencies are toward uh, an intense specialization. And they created institutions in their colleges, schools that, uh, did work to produce this, um, to you, I, I speak of them now sort of as enlightened archaists. They were archaic in an enlightened way. They used older techniques to try to open the minds of the, of their young. And it, it succeeded to a great extent. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was deeply affected by his experience in prep school and named an Endicott Peabody as the, uh, foremost, uh, influence on his life after his after his parents. And uh, what Plato says in his late book, The Laws, he sort of, you know, of course, we all read Republic in college, and we know Plato is very skeptical about poetry and wanted to censor the poets and uh, make philosophers run the city. In The Laws, when he's older, it's a book that started recently to get more attention. It's been ignored for years. But he seems to say that, uh, that there is a a value, a, a very rational value, even in uh, supposedly archaic and mythical things such as uh, poetry and music. And he does have that, I think, quite uh, 
I don't know, profound or mystical statement in the laws that we have, mankind has been thread on a, strung on a thread of poetry and play by their choir masters, the gods. I think that was a insight that meant quite a lot to a number of WASP educators, George Santiano or uh, William Emery Gardner at Groton, who really created this institution where you were surrounded not just by football, but by poetry and music all day from the chapel to Shakespeare to readings and Dante and the, what he called his pleasure dome. Uh, it sounds maybe perhaps a little grim or pretentious, but uh, it worked. Yes, it did. And, and I mean, I, for one, reading your book and, and I myself having been brought up in the, in the very much in the wasp tradition and the, uh, I, I I miss it. I, I the Auchincloss says that too. He says that when the wasps are gone, we'll miss them. And the, uh, yes, he said that to me when I was complaining to him about them. He took my complaints very civilly. That's the way yeah. he was. He was a very generous man. Um, but he said, you know, when we're gone, they will miss us. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. I got to thank you for speaking with us today. We've been speaking with Michael Knox Barron about his new and very fine book, Wasps, The Splendors and Miseries of an American Aristocracy. Thank you, Michael. Yes, thanks. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you so much. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.